You're listening to Intergenerational Politics, hosted by Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi. We have conversations with amazing guests on the issues facing our country today and ask the questions all generations want answered. We hope you enjoy this episode, and once you're finished listening, leave us a rating or a comment to support future episodes of Intergenerational Politics. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA and the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden. And I'm Jill Weinbanks. I'm the author of The Watergate Girl and also, there it is, sorry, and um, an MSNBC legal correspondent. I'm also the wearer of Jill's pins, hashtag Jill's pins. And today's pin is very special. It's um, a representation of Texas. It is a lasso. Uh, so it's in honor of our very special guest today, Beto O'Rourke. We come to you a little over a week since former President Trump was acquitted despite an abundance of evidence and a convincing case presented by the House impeachment managers proving the grounds for convicting Trump and barring him from running for office. With the Republican Party completely beholden to Trump, this brings to mind the importance of elections, particularly the next midterm election in a year and a half, and electing sane leaders who acknowledge facts and reality and govern with actual principles. We are also coming to you as Texas is dealing with the fallout of having been without electricity, heat, and water because of below freezing temperatures across the state, and with Senator Cruz having flown to Mexico during the time that his state needed him. Today, we have with us the man who almost ousted Cruz from the Senate, Beto O'Rourke. That race defied all expectations in a state that has so long been red. I watched one of Beto's town halls in that race and was blown away by him. After that, as many of you know, Beto ran for president in 2020. And before that, he was a member of the El Paso City Council, a U.S. congressman. And we'll be talking to Beto today on his thoughts on the current situation in his state, his thoughts on Senator Ted Cruz, um, the future um, that he might or might not have after his visit to Mexico during the Texas crisis and the current political landscape in Texas, and how um, to defeat voter suppression and gerrymandering in that state. And I know that the aspiring politician in my colleague, Victor, will want to ask Beto for advice for his generation on running for office. So first, thank you so much for being here, Beto. We are really grateful that you're here with us today. Grateful to be with you, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Same here. Okay, so let's start with um, the unfortunate series of events going on in Texas. Um, First, the brutal temperatures and snowfall, which then resulted in a portion of Texas losing heat, electricity, and water. Um, I just want to start by asking, how is it going down there right now? It's honestly really bad. And though electricity has been restored to most residential customers, which is a great thing, Many people, and we don't know how many yet, still do not have water because when the power went out, it also went out for a lot of the water utilities. Um, We also had frozen pipes. We had pipes that once they were unfrozen were busted uh, with low or no water pressure. We have a recent count with 7 million Texans under a boil water notice, which, as you know, means that whatever comes out of your tap is unsafe to drink until you boil it. Uh, We have a run on bottled water because so many millions of Texans can't drink what's coming out of their their tap. And there are 
serious fears about there not being enough uh, drinkable, safe water in, in the state. You have people who have frozen to death in their homes, in their cars, folks who've died of carbon monoxide poisoning, a eight-year-old girl and her mother died in their garage trying to stay warm in, in, their, car, in their car to charge their, their phones and just get some heat. Uh, you've had people who died in house fires as they burn what's available to, to generate heat. So, um, you know, the, the honest answer to your question is it's, it's really bad in Texas, and we are not out of the woods yet. Um, there are real shortages of food. Um, you, if you've been online, you, you may have seen pictures of grocery stores in Texas. I mean, the, the shelves are, and many of them are bare, and that's if you can get in. There are lines that wrap around the block to be able to get into to these grocery stores. So th this is, any way you measure it or look at it, the worst storm in Texas history. And it happened uh, at a time where the infrastructure that would protect us against that storm absolutely failed us from, from water to electricity uh, and, and really even to government. So uh, a, a tough time for Texas. Definitely. And I, I saw pictures of it yesterday and just seeing it from here in Illinois. It's just so gut-wrenching seeing, you know, their power and electricity is back and so is water. But, you know, once those families get into their home, their homes are flooded now. And so it's just, it's so devastating. And part of this, I think what was so frustrating for me just watching this is that your governor at first blamed windmills and the Green New Deal for causing this. Um, what do you think of that excuse? And I guess in the first place, what do you think caused the lack of preparedness um, to deal with um, such a crisis? Here's what happened. Texas made the decision to deregulate um, the generation and distribution and consumption of electricity uh, in the uh, ERCOT grid, which is essentially an electricity grid that, that only serves uh, the most, most of Texas. Actually, where I am is not in, in ERCOT and El Paso, but most of Texas is under it. And it's, for all intents and purposes, not connected to the national grid. There are some benefits to that. Um, it, it is increased competition. It, it has lowered uh, rates. Um, it has incentivized uh, a certain amount of risk taking that actually has produced investment in wind turbines, solar. Um, so there's some good things that come with it. But, but here's the downside that, that we obviously are, are very aware of now. There, there is no incentive and there's no mandate to store additional or excess capacity. As a generator in Texas, you're only paid for what you produce and are able to sell right away. You're, you're not paid for keeping and storing uh, energy to have it at the ready when we have a disaster like this. We're really kind of the exception in electricity markets in the country. Many of them have a capacity market that pays providers to store this stuff for when you have storms and hurricanes and you know uh, weather like, like we just experienced in, in Texas. So that contributed to this. There's also been no effective oversight to require weatherization, meaning to protect the pipelines, uh, the production facilities, the instrumentation from freezing. You know, some people have said, well, this is just a, a crazy event. It got really cold and, and the, the gas facilities, the nuclear facility, the coal facilities, the wind turbines, they just, they just can't handle this kind of cold. Well, they handle this kind of cold in Iowa. They handle this kind of cold in Denmark. They handle this kind of cold in Alaska. You can do this, but it costs money and, and it requires governance and regulation 
and oversight. And, and we missed all that. And then the, the last thing, Victor, uh, and the most important thing probably, is you have people in government, uh, and, and this state has been governed by Republicans, unbroken at every level of government for the last 20 years. Um, you have people in power who don't believe in science and don't believe in climate change and who, who don't understand or choose not to accept that events like this and Hurricane Harvey in 2017 and record droughts that we see in, in North Texas, these kinds of events are going to become more frequent. They're already becoming more frequent, more severe, more unpredictable, deadlier. And so you have to, one, adjust current infrastructure to protect those who are in harm's way. Um, and two, you've got to start making policy that averts the worst of future catastrophes by combating climate change while there's still time to do it. That's what produced the situation that we're in right now. Um, it wasn't anything else. And that doesn't have to be a, a partisan uh, statement or, or fact. It just, it just is. And it will require Republicans in a Republican-dominated state and Democrats and folks who could care less about partisanship working together to address that. That's what we need right now. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think, you know, before we went live, um, we were talking about just the amazing uh, volunteer uh, efforts going around in Texas. Um, and that's because of a lack of leadership there. Um, what can our audience listening to this podcast or watching this podcast right now do to help the situation down there? There's a couple of things you can do. Um, we have an organization uh, called Powered by People. And the website is poweredxpeople.org. So powered, the letter X, people.org. Um, go on there, sign up for a volunteer shift. We, we are conducting wellness checks to senior citizens across the state of Texas by phone. We made yesterday, um, you know, a little over 750,000 phone calls wow. because thousands of people went to the website, signed up and joined us on these phone banks. And what you find is that you can provide some direct human kindness to people who've been isolated and afraid and need to know that someone cares about them and is checking in on them. But you can also connect them with transportation, with water, with a warming center. There are these warming centers set up across Texas where you can go to get heat uh, if, you, if you lack electricity in your home. Um, you can also go to that website and make a donation, 100% of which will be shared with food banks, homeless shelters, uh, and people who are working on the ground in their communities to, to help their, their fellow residents. 0% um, overhead direct to the, the people who need it. Um, I, I'd encourage everyone who's listening to consider doing that if they want to help the people in Texas. Thank you for that, Beto. That is good advice. I hope our audience will follow it. Um, I want to move to a slightly different subject, which is very well. Well, uh, and that is Ted Cruz. He is completely aligned with uh, the Trump cult now. And um, that's even though when he ran against him, he said some of the most nasty things like Trump was a pathological liar. Um, do you think that his recent trip to Mexico is going to cause him to suffer any support in Texas? I don't know, <laughs> is, is my very honest, depressing answer. Um, you've got people in government who don't believe in government. Um, you have people in the highest positions of public trust, li literally um, who 
have the power to direct resources to those who are in desperate life or death need right now, who are vacationing in Cancun, or in the case of our governor going on the Hannity program on Fox News, before he talks to the people of Texas to blame the Green New Deal or Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, um, what we need, and I could care less what party you come from, is someone and, and people in government who believe that the very purpose of government is to do that which we alone could not do ourselves, um, that we uh, pay our taxes to and um, follow the, the rules made by those in positions of power because we know it helps us to educate our kids or to protect the public health or to distribute vaccines, or in this case, to make sure that our electricity grid is there when, when we need it uh, the, the most. But, but Jill, I'll say this, um, I don't want the, um, the reaction to Ted Cruz vacationing in Cancun at the Ritz-Carlton while people are freezing to death in Texas to distract us from the more important challenge, which is Ted Cruz openly worked to overturn a, a lawfully, democratically, legitimately decided election used his position in the Senate, on the floor of the Senate, to try to do so, encouraged the insurrectionists and the seditionists and those who attempted the coup on that same day to, to try to literally uh, overtake our government, and in the process, killed five people, including a, a, a police officer. Jill, my feeling is that if there are no consequences for that, not, not, I'm not talking electorally, but I'm talking about expulsion from, from the Senate, then we'll have set a precedent that you can work outside of the Constitution, outside of the rule of law, outside of a democracy uh, and, and democratic norms. And if, if that is the new normal, then I guarantee you someone like Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley will walk right through that hole that they've blown in our democracy to, to seize power in a future year not unprecedented. We've seen other Western democracies suffer a similar fate. That I think we must be vigilant against. And that is the, um, the, the, the thing to hold this guy accountable for. Um, but, but yes, we, we've got our work cut out for us in Texas. I, I'm so glad you raised that because, of course, Victor and I completely agree with that assessment. Um, I, I do want to just make sure that our audience knows that not only did he leave for Cancun, but his wife uh, sent out a tweet, or I think it was a text message, where she said that they wanted to go to Cancun because it was, in all caps, freezing, and they were going to stay at the Ritz-Carlton until Sunday, which also puts the lie to his excuse that he was just dropping off his daughters and that he was coming back anyway. Uh, if they were planning to stay till Sunday, that was not his intention. And so while you're pointing to a much bigger issue, I think there should be some electoral um, consequences for that. But let's talk about that recent acquittal and what it means for the Republican Party. Um, there has been some uh, discussion that this is going to be devastating to the Republican Party, that it is now totally Trump's party. Um, and it's not just Ted Cruz who voted to acquit. It's your other senator, John Cornyn, also voted to acquit. And Neither is up for election in 2022, um, so that's not going to have an immediate electoral uh, impact on them. 
But how does that play in Texas now? Does it have consequences? Uh, do the people of Texas understand what happened in the president's uh, inciting this insurrection and leading to death? Yes, I, I believe the people of Texas do. And the challenge when you have a party that is so firmly associated with insurrection and sedition, and in large part, at least those who represent the party in the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, are enthralled to uh, the most lawless, racist, um, the worst president we've ever had, Donald Trump, to the point that that party, in large part, is a cult of personality right now. The challenge is that in Texas, that party has also done everything within its power to keep people who might challenge their power out of our democracy. We, we have the most restrictive laws when it comes to voter registration. You can't register to vote online in Texas. We're one of only 10 states and, and the only swing state that prevents you from doing that in the year of our Lord, 2021. You, uh, you, you also have seen 750 polling place closures over the last eight years in one of the fastest growing states. And guess what? Those, those polling place closures are concentrated in the fastest growing black and Latino neighborhoods. You had, uh, Texas is one of the only states not to allow uh, vote by mail uh, in, the worst, in the midst of the worst pandemic in, in 102 years. Um, it has produced a situation where Texas, though we're at the center of almost every major public policy issue you can think of, is ranked 46th in the country in voter turnout. That is not for any lack of love of democracy. That is because we were literally drawn that way and voter suppressed that way and voter intimidated that way. So, Jill, I think that the true answer to your question is if everyone could vote who should be able to vote, um, I think there would be electoral and political consequences for Ted Cruz and John Cornyn and Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick and Ken Paxton and all of those who are complicit in the cr crimes uh, against this country and against our democracy. But they have so artfully and, and really borderline illegally stopped so many from being able to vote that they have this almost artificial hold on, on power. That, I think, is our challenge. And, and just one quick thought to add to that, because you may wonder, well, great, Beto, you, you've told us just how bad it is. How does it get better then? There's a great opportunity uh, pending in the United States Congress right now. It's called the For the People Act, uh, also known as H.R. 1 and Senate Bill 1. Uh, this would allow for national automatic voter registration, same-day voter registration, citizen commissions that draw the district boundaries for members of Congress instead of the members of Congress drawing them themselves, restoration of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act so that there are no more shenanigans in Texas or Georgia or other states of the former Confederacy to disenfranchise Black voters and voters in communities of color. There are public financing opportunities for candidates to level the playing field against incumbents. This would do a lot to restore our democracy and nowhere more so than in the state of Texas. All right, so I want to follow up on a lot of that because those are great thoughts. Um, it does look like Texas could be flipped to blue. Um, it, it wouldn't be a shock, but how, how conservative is the Texas electorate right now and what policies from a Democratic candidate would they accept? 
Texas is the state that produced Lyndon Baines Johnson, who used all of his political capital and all of his skill in navigating the Senate and all the personal relationships that he built over a lifetime of public service to pass and sign into law the 1964 Civil Rights Act, mm -hmm. to pass and sign into law the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Um, those who, who write off Texas as, as too red uh, to count um, or, or too conservative to contest uh, might not know our history and, and may not know that in a state of 30 million, that is one of the most diverse in the country, where, for example, there are more Vietnamese language speakers in the city of Houston than in any other city on the planet outside of the country of Vietnam. That in the school district in Houston, they speak like 140 languages um, in those classrooms. That's, that Houston is the most diverse city in the United States of America. Um, because of that challenge of voting rights and, and access to the ballot box and the ability to, to register, you're not seeing that reflected in those who hold positions of leadership and public trust right now. So, Jill, you know, if, if you were to answer that question based on those who are in power right now, you might say, look, it's, it's really red, it's really conservative. If you were to base your answer on everyone in, in Texas, including those who've been effectively prevented from voting right now, I think you'd get something far, far different. You'd, you'd get a state that, that is in no way proud of the fact that we're the least insured in the United States, that we had four of the worst mass shootings in U.S. history just in the last three years in our state, including my hometown of El Paso, where 23 people were murdered in a Walmart in 2019 by a gunman inspired by Donald Trump, you'd see a state that would want to address climate change because we are on the front lines of climate change. This current storm is, is a perfect uh, case in point. Uh, so, um, so, so that question, I think, can only be effectively answered when we bring everyone in, which was, which was a famous uh, saying of, of former Governor Ann Richards of Texas, a Democrat, proud progressive Democrat, um, who was elected to to serve our state uh, as as governor. So it's it's a, a more complex and a far more interesting story than I think most people outside of Texas realize. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about um, strategy for the 2022 election, which um, is on the front of our minds right now. Um, what do you think is the right way to turn out voters in Texas? Because you mentioned areas like Houston, which are really diverse. Um, do you think it's do you think that's about focusing on turning out urban voters, distributing resources evenly throughout the state, or looking at turning out more rural areas? Like, what do you think is the best strategy to um, flip Texas blue? Um, come, I guess not 2022, but 2024 and beyond? Victor, my advice, and, and this is in, in no way the conventional wisdom amongst Democrats. And in fact, I, I think you find uh, a lot who would vigorously disagree with me on this, is to reject every one of those false choices that, that you presented. Um, you, you can and you should, I think, if you, you care at all about public service, go everywhere and go to everyone. And in 2017 and 2018, when I was a statewide candidate, I went to every single one of the 254 counties of Texas. You could not be too red for me to show up. I went to King County, which in 2016 voted for Donald Trump 96%, 96%. But I went to King County knowing full well I would not win King County, but knowing that I could not effectively represent King County if I had not shown up in King County and listened to the people of King County before trying to 
serve them in the United States Senate. Um, but I'd also go to the Third Ward in Houston, Texas, and listen to those who, perhaps because of the color of their skin or their country of national origin or past voting history, were, were just in the bag for Democrats. And so Democrats say, well, why bother talking to them? They're already going to vote for us. I went and talked to them too, because you know, if the great sin committed by Republicans is to disenfranchise voters of color, the great sin of the Democratic Party is to take those same voters for granted and never sit down and listen to them and bring them into the leadership of uh, campaigns and causes that we really believe in. So now, is that more work? Hell yes. Uh, you know, we just about killed ourselves doing that in 2017 and, and 2018. It took us two years uh, to, to fully campaign across that state. But that's the way to do it. Um, and, and I wouldn't uh, advise anyone to do it any different. I know there are super smart people, much smarter than I am, who slice and dice the electorate and say, you know what, you can leave these folks out. You'll never win them. Go to these folks and turn them on. You know, all Mexican-Americans will vote this way. You know, all white Americans will vote this way, et cetera. Screw that. Um, treat every person with the respect and dignity that they're owed. Do not treat them as part of a monolith or, or anything else. Um, we, all, we all deserve that. And I would want that from my elected official and, and from anybody campaigning for my vote. So I think we got to deliver that. And so let's not be lazy. Let's not phone this stuff in. Let's not try to win it with money or TV ads or snappy responses on Twitter. Let's let's be there for and with people. You also mentioned voter suppression, which has kept some of the Democratic voters from being able to weigh in on elections. And it's a big problem, obviously, because you've mentioned it in Texas. What are the answers that we can solve quickly? I mean, before the 2022 election, the Democrats hold a very narrow margin uh, in the House, and it's 50-50 in the Senate. So we need to, even though Texas senators won't be up in 2022, we still need to get busy on that. What's your suggestion? If, if you and I, and Victor, and everybody who's listened to this could focus on one thing, it would be changing the filibuster so that you no longer need 60 votes in the United States Senate in order to pass any meaningful piece of legislation. Democrats have a majority, it's a narrow one. It's, it's 51 votes to 50 when you include Vice President Kamala Harris. But we do have a majority. We have a majority in the House of Representatives. We have a Democrat in, in the White House. If you want people to vote in this country, if you want to overcome the most significant attack on our democracy since the end of Reconstruction, then you must change the filibuster so that Senate Bill 1 and H.R. 1 in the House, the For the People Act, can pass and be signed into law by President Joe Biden. That and that alone will address this. Everything else that we could do, as important and noble as the effort might be, will come to nothing if we do not fix that. And, and so, there's a lot in front of us and a lot to respond and react to. I think what we need right now is, is focus, and we need to achieve this goal, reforming the filibuster, allowing uh, a simple majority to pass important legislation, which gives us true democracy in, in the United States. I think ending gridlock would be a really wonderful thing, and that has happened because of 
the filibuster. Um, when we're focusing now on climate change, you can see how, uh, obviously, for the last four years, the Trump administration has walked away from climate change, the science, and participation in any international dialogue. But even during the Obama administration, the Republicans prevented passing laws, and that kept us from addressing it. Um, another thing Republicans have done, and we're running out of time, but I just want to maybe get some quick answers, um, is that it's something that the uh, Republicans have focused on has been obviously filling uh, judicial seats and state houses, both legislative branches in all the states and the governor's mansions. And that has a very significant impact on, for example, redistricting, because they controlled the redistricting, um, and on the laws, uh, choice. Many, many uh, laws are impacted because they now control so many more state houses. Um, what do you think the Democrats can do? Uh, what can Texas do? Your numbers are moving up. Democrats are taking more seats. Republicans are, you know, giving up a few. But you're still a minority in Texas. What what can Democrats do in Texas to help that uh, problem? You're you're right. We are so close in Texas. When when I ran in, in 2018, though I did not defeat Ted Cruz, I got to be part of this extraordinary effort, really unprecedented in Texas in terms of the grassroots. Um, activation of volunteers by the tens of thousands, knocking on doors, making phone calls, personally connecting with their fellow Texans to produce the largest voter turnout in the midterm since 1970. Um, and you saw, you know, in my case, um, I was the first Democrat to win the four major metro areas in Texas since Lyndon Baines Johnson lasted in 1964. You saw 12 Democrats win state house races against Republicans, putting us only nine seats down from a majority in, in, our, in our state legislature. And you saw gains across the board, 17 African-American women elected to judicial positions in Harris County, one county alone, literally changing the face of criminal justice in, in the most diverse city in, in the country. Uh, so, so the task, Jill, I think, is to build on those gains. And the closer you get, the harder it's going to be. And if it were easy, we would have been there already. Um, so while I think we put up a great effort in, in 2020, it just was insufficient to the, the challenge at hand. And that means we need to redouble, learn from what we did before, get smarter going forward, take a page out of the book that Stacey Abrams wrote and Ense yeah. Ufot and the, the great people of, of Georgia, grassroots organizers and candidates alike. And, and, and then, as Ann Richards said, to, to bring her back into this, uh, let the people in. Um, br bring everyone in. Write nobody off. Take no one for granted. And you're right. We, we can win local elections and state legislative elections. And once again, um, have uh, a majority in those bodies that, that really determine the course that not just Texas will take, but given our outsized influence on this country, that the nation will take going forward. So that's the work I'm engaged in. And, you know, just along with, with other thousands of, of, of other great volunteers and, and I'm fulfilled doing that. I, I love this and I can't think of anything more important. 
Yeah, your work has been so inspiring. And we just have one more question to end the podcast. And I know my generation will really appreciate this because throughout this podcast, we've mentioned um, the deficit of sane leadership, particularly coming from the Republican Party. And, you know, during your senatorial and presidential run, you became a really well-liked candidate um, by many of my peers. And as someone who ran for office yourself at all levels of government, local, state, and national, what advice would you tell my generation on the importance of running for office and getting involved in public service? I'll tell you what, um, many people, and, and I was among them at one time, think that, that politics is for a, a select few, that there are just too many secret handshakes involved. Uh, there's a, a good old boys network into which you must be plugged. Um, you, you've got to receive a tap on the shoulder before you can be elevated into, into you know, a position of significance. Um, None of that holds true. Um, what our democracy needs, in addition to passing HR1 and, and S1, the For the People Act, is, is more people, and, and I would argue more young people, putting themselves out there to hold these positions of public trust and to bring the benefit of their experience, their wisdom, their expertise to bear on the challenges we have. Victor, on, on all of the issues that matter most, I can tell you from firsthand experience, traveling the state of Texas and holding hundreds if not thousands of town hall meetings and answering tens of thousands of questions. The most pressing and urgent questions were asked by young people about climate change, about income inequality, about healthcare, about gun violence, about justice and racial justice in particular. That urgency that young people bring to our government and our democracy, that urgency that a young John Lewis brought to the issue of voting rights that uh, allowed him to almost sacrifice himself literally in order to gain the franchise for everyone in, in this country, uh, reminds us that at every single major turn of this country, young people have been in the vanguard of critical important change, voting rights, civil rights, um, you, you name it. Um, it. It has been young people. And so I see that now in the Black Lives Matter protests, um, the, the protests for justice. And, and again, these urgent demands on our lawmakers and those who seek to hold public office to answer for um, themselves and for future generations. So get in. And, and whether that's volunteering, whether that's running for office, whether that's you know, uh, starting an organization to pursue the cause that, that most animates you and, and drives you in life, just do it. Um, there's never going to be a perfect time. There's never going to be an ideal set of circumstances. Uh, what I've found is you just get in there, get after it, and, and it'll, it'll, it'll make sense if you're willing to put the work in. Thank you so much for that advice for Victor and his peers and for talking to us and mostly for all you're doing right now. Uh, to help the people of Texas overcome the hurdles that are in front of them because of the weather and um, in terms of voter suppression and getting out the vote. You're, you're really doing what needs to be done, and we appreciate it. Thank you. For sure. If you ever do run for office again, my generation is comp we're, we're totally ready to support you. So um, you are definitely needed out there. Very grateful to you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks. so much.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Intergenerational Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. We always love reading through your comments and your reviews, so let us know your thoughts about this episode of Intergenerational Politics on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. You can also feel free to share our podcast with a family member or a friend to make sure that everyone is a part of intergenerational dialogues. Thank you so much again. See you next time.